Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, September 25th, 2012. little rainy day here in Indiana. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, one of the things I've talked about here on Fighting for the Faith um, in the past is what I call the heresy hurricane season. And heresy hurricane season begins with Labor Day, in uh, the United States, that's a <clears throat> holiday in the, the like the first weekend of September, somewhere about there, uh, and it lasts all the way until Memorial Day in the United States, which is roughly you know like the last weekend of May. And um, <clears throat> the reason I call it the heresy hurricane season is because that's when everybody is back to work. I mean, summer vacations are over. And you got to remember, heretics take, you know, summer vacations too. They travel the world, you know, they go on speaking engagements and stuff like that. But once they get back into the saddle, once they get, you know, their kids are in school or their grandkids are in school and, you know, everybody's settled in for the fall, right? I mean, because here in the United States, vacations, they be done. They, you know, in fact, you know, the next big travel season coming up is uh, what? Uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, uh, you know, at the uh, tail end of November. And then you got the Christmas season coming up. And both of those things are kind of like quick. I mean, they'll be here before we know it. But the point is this, is that um, <clears throat> when uh, people get to work, sit down and, and hunker down uh, and start publishing, recording, spewing Heresy, it just kind of hits you all at once. And one of the things I've <laughs> noticed is, is that we've got a good right now between the different fronts that uh, uh, historic Orthodox Christianity is uh, facing as far as hostile attacks against it. On all the fronts, every front is, you know, the, the enemy is attacking vigorously 
attacking aggressively and hard. I mean, and it, they're not playing to uh, go for, you know, to basically wound. They're trying to take Jesus out. I mean, that's plain and simple. The nations rage against God, and by nature, every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins, and heretics are not, under any stretch of the imagination, attempting to forward sound biblical teaching, um, the biblical proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, uh, nor are they interested in defending and proclaiming the authority of Scripture. In fact, they are rather vocal about um, the fact that they are working to undermine, redefine God's Word. And this year's heresy hurricane season, you know, like I said, we're in the middle of a Category 5. Now, you know, I, I, I need to talk to the powers that be about this because, you know, when they talk about hurricanes, you got, you got different categories. You got Category 1 through 5. 5 is supposed to be the strongest. I am thinking that this year's heresy hurricane season we're put we're, we could be pushing the 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 limits of the uh, heresy hurricane scale and uh, we may need to adjust it uh, i mean we uh, it's such a strong 5 right now that we could probably say it's a 6 i mean it's that it's that bad and and it's destructive and what's the goal satan is the great deceiver he is the liar he is he is not interested in telling the truth he is interesting is interested only on getting people to stop proclaiming Christ. Stop preaching that crucified and risen Savior who died for our sins. Stop telling sinners to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him for their salvation and forgiveness. Now, he's got to get people off of that topic. And so he's come up with some very slick, candy-coated substitutes that um, that taste sweet uh, when they get into your mouth. But once you swallow it, yeah, it's the, the bitter aftertaste and the burning sensation that you experience uh, first begins in, in your gut and then eventually works its way out to your entire body after you're thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so, yeah, you've got to tell you, you know, it, the, the devil is very good at putting on a very sweet candy coating to his false teaching, false gospels, false Jesus, false yeah, everything, uh, in order to create the impression that, oh well, this is oh it's uh, this tastes great, you know. But then you know it's, the problem is it's the after effects, yeah, the after effects. You know, I I kind of liken it to really rich Italian Sicilian type food. For me, as I get older, what I've, what I've noticed is is that when I partake of things that are like rich in garlic or um, or onions and things like that, that, oh, as much as I love that, oh, oh, man, yeah, just, just thinking about it now, you know, a really good deep dish Sicilian pizza, whew, anyway, sorry, I distracted myself, but, um, you know, when, when I partake of those types of things, as much as I savor every single succulent, uh, garlicky, cheesy, warm, Bite! Ah, but the problem is, is that then at night, okay, I wake up and it's like, oh, I'm in so much pain, and you know, and you've got that acid feeling, and just this, oh, and you got to take a Pepsid, and and it's just, it's bad, it's it's horrible. It's see, see, that's the thing. Heresy does that to you. It might taste good when it's going down. You might think, oh, well, this is so comforting. I just, this is so great. 
But see, afterwards, the burn that it gives, again, it starts down in your gut and then works its way out. And then eventually, you know, you, you end up in the lake of fire and the burning, there's, there's no pepsid for that. There's nothing that, go, that can get rid of that. So, just so, you know, it's not good. So what we try to do here is demonstrate to you by stripping off the candy coating of Satan's favorite heresies and lies uh, that that this isn't the truth, that these these are lies, damn lies, and lies that will damn, uh, that uh, that these are false gospels, false everything, and uh, and they end up, the, the result of which is that people end up in hell. They, they comfort people falsely. They teach things about God that God has not said. And uh, and so that so keep that in mind. And, and everybody this year, all of the major her- heretical fronts are banging on all cylinders, and they put together a better than a five uh, category five heresy hurricane this year. So just saying, it is something I've noticed. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Okay. Got to a oh man, I've got a Granger commute. Uh, uh, well, it's no longer Granger Community Church. Um, I got a, a Granger update. Um, you remember that Granger has recast their vision, uh, and and they had a participatory vision recasting for their church, and uh, and they've they're in the process of executing on the vision and turning Granger into basically a community center. And so one of the important things they've had to do is remove the word church from their name. And so we got an update regarding that. Um, I've got an update regarding that you the so-called gospel of Jesus' wife. Well, um, I told you, uh, you know, <laughs> that number one, I told you that if it was real, it was Gnostic. Number two, um, that there was doubt as to whether or not it was even authentic. But number, you know, but number three, the important thing is this: is that it purported, you know, to to be a fourth century Coptic fragment. Okay, that would and the metaphor that I came up with. Listen, I mean, this would be like somebody coming up with a 21st century college ruled fragment. You know, you go down to CVS, buy some you know blue college ruled paper. It's the standard stuff the kids use in high school nowadays, and you know, cut it into about the size of a um, uh, of a. Of a business card, and then in, on the writing, you know, have the sentence that says, uh, "And George Washington said, my gay lover." Okay, you know, when you know, would we think that that had anything whatsoever to do with the real George Washington? Of course not. Same thing with that fragment. Well, it turns out with uh, there's a, an expert who's saying that that uh, gospel of Jesus wife thing is a fake. <laughs> Why am I not shocked? We've got a Brian McLaren update today. Um, we've also got a Tony Jones update today. And, we, and, a, and a kind of a full, this, the, the, let's just put it this way. I mean, today's episode, the first hour, it's, it, with the exception of the Granger thing, it's just packed full of emergent postmodern nonsense. It's probably the way to say it. I mean, wait till you hear, if, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you already know what I'm going to talk about regarding Brian McLaren today. Um, but we'll, I'll save the uh, headline for when we get there. But uh, And then in hour number two, we're going to, uh, for our summer re- review, we're going to go to Gilbert, Arizona, to Cornerstone Church, one of the premier seeker-driven churches. In fact, one of the first uh, seeker-driven churches to uh, to purchase and preach uh, a sex sermon series um, that was originally delivered at Granger, no longer a church. They, they're just Granger. 
Um, Granger Commons. I you know I don't know what to call them, but they're, they're no longer a church. Um, but uh, Granger the, the, back in the day did a, a sex sermon series, and they sold it online. You know that in, not only did it include the the PowerPoint slides, the preaching outlines, um, but it also included no joke. It, it it also included a press kit, a press kit so that you can contact the media to let them know that you were you know just a template. A, a, a template uh, press release to send to the media to let them know you were doing a, a sex sermon series, talking points for when the media showed up so they can coach you on what to say. So, so they say things like, you know, the church has just been long silent about the topic of sex, and it's about time that the church said something. It's ridiculous. The church has always been talking about sex. But anyway, just, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and also uh, artwork for billboards. And so uh, Cornerstone was one of these uh, churches that they did the full-blown Granger sex sermon series that they had purchased, including the billboards and everything. And so we're going to be listening to a, a sermon from them. about The name of the sermon series, by the way, is Untitled. No, no kidding. That's that's the, the name of the sermon series is untitled, but the name of the sermon we're going to be listening to is called "Writing Your Family Story." And this, the the question that I am going to pose it right now, okay, so that you can kind of see the connection between the first hour and the second hour. Because if I don't pose the question, you may not see that there really is a connection between these two, uh, the, these two hours. And that's this. Um, in the first hour. We're going to be looking at people who are flat out, openly attacking God's word and the authority of Scripture and what it says. Okay, um, these are the emergent postmodern liberals. We're, they are flat out attacking it. Okay, but in hour number two, we're going to be listening to the sermon untitled "Writing Your Family Story," and Cornerstone claims that they are Bible believing. They believe that the Bible is the the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. I've never heard them attack God's word. But here's the question. Is despite the fact that they're, quote, not attacking God's word in the sermon, um, that they claim that they uh, uh, that they believe in the authority of Scripture, what good is that when, when they have the opportunity to preach the Scripture, they don't preach what it says? And they completely mishandle it and twist it and make it into something else. I mean, because here's the deal. There are, there's, let's put it this way. There, there are more than, Several. No, there's several different ways in which you can attack the authority of Scripture. You can take the direct route, which the emergent postmoderns do. They take the direct, head-on, confrontational route. Okay, the Bible says this. The Bible's wrong. Okay, that's what the emergents. It can't mean that. It means something else. You, yeah, we, we're going to treat the Bible like silly putty, and we're not. And and go even go so far as to claim that you know, maybe that uh, some of the things that Jesus said they're not authoritative. I'm no joke. You're going to hear that today. You're going to hear that today. Okay, that's one way to attack the authority of Scripture. The other way to do it is to do it tacitly. Now, if you don't know what the word tacitly it means, tacit kind of means uh, without, you know, without stating it openly. Okay. So what happens is, is you have to look at the actions. Uh, you have to, you know, and you, because the person, rather than saying, okay, listen, I'm going to attack scripture and then attack it. What they're going to do is they'll say, they'll, they're kind of two-faced. They'll say something like, oh, I believe in scripture. I believe in the authority of scripture. Absolutely. And then when they open up the Bible, they twist it so badly away from what it says that what's the point in saying that you believe in the authority of Scripture when in your preaching 
you're not conscious bound to preach what the text says. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, those are two completely different um, tactics that result in the same thing. At the end of the day, the Bible is silly putty, and you can make it say what it wants to say. One group, at least they're honest and say they don't believe in the authority of Scripture. The other group says they believe in the authority of Scripture, but in practice, they don't actually believe in the authority of Scripture because their conscience isn't bound by it. They don't teach what it says. Okay? You get what I'm saying there? Anyway, so... That's what we're going to do today, and uh, I think with that, we need to uh, dive into the program proper, and maybe we should cover the news story first. Here we go. All right, from the um, Guardian in the UK, the headline reads, Gospel of Jesus' Wife is a Fake Claims Expert. Scholar says papyrus fragment believed to provide evidence that Jesus was married is a modern forgery. This is written by Andrew Brown of The Guardian in the UK. Sent out a link to this last week on Facebook and Twitter, but I thought, you know, I better make sure that everybody knows that this story is out there. The the story reads this. A, A New Testament scholar claims to have found evidence suggesting that the gospel of Jesus' wife is a modern forgery. Professor Francis uh, Watson of Durham University says the papyrus fragment, which caused a worldwide sensation when it appeared earlier this week because it appeared to refer to Jesus' wife, is a patchwork of texts from the genuine Coptic language gospel of Thomas, which have been copied and then reassembled out of order to make a suggestive new whole. In a paper published online, Watson argues that all of the sentence fragments found on the papyrus fragment have been copied, sometimes with small alterations from printed editions of the Gospel of Thomas. The discovery has already sparked fierce debate among academics, but Watson believes that new research may prove to be conclusive. Quote, I think it's more or less indisputable that I have shown how the thing was composed, he said. I would be very surprised if it were not a modern forgery, although it is possible that it was composed in this way in the 4th century. His paper claims the work was assembled by someone who was not a native speaker of Coptic, which is a polite way of saying it is modern. So there you go. I mean, we get now we got people just flat out at, you know. But what is again, again, what does this prove? What does this little fragment prove? Absolutely nothing. Does did Jesus have a wife? The eyewitnesses never mentioned that Jesus having a wife. Hmm. I think we should go with the first century eyewitnesses, which, by the way, we can find their biographical eyewitness testimony uh, to Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As far as a business card size, so-called fourth century Coptic thing that, com- that is more than likely influenced by the Gnostic Gospels, whether or not it's a forgery, it doesn't say anything. You know, like I said, this is the the equivalent of going and basically getting a college-ruled piece of business card-sized paper and on there having the sentence, and George Washington said, my gay lover, as if somehow that proves that George Washington had a gay lover. Uh, when no one ever uh, recorded anywhere from the eyewitness testimony to the life of George Washington that he had anything of the sort. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Okay, now this next segment, I do not have music for Granger Community Church. 
But uh, this comes from the Tony Morgan uh, Live.com website, Tony Morgan Live.com. Tony Morgan at one time worked at Granger, then went to work for Perry Noble, and now he's kind of like a freelance church consultant. And uh, he was recently at uh, Granger's Reinnovate conference and uh, wrote a blog post just a few days ago called Granger Removes Church from the Name of Its Facility. Granger removes the name of name removes church from the name of its facility. He, he writes, he says, I spent the day yesterday at the property formerly known as Granger Community Church for the Reinnovate Conference because the church is not a building. Granger has remained has renamed their property to Granger Commons. This is all part of their new normal project. That's their new vision that they've that they've you know re- supposedly received from God. Remember a uh, Blackaby style and. And in fact, here is a video, audio from a video uh, put out by Granger. They're no longer a church. Um, and uh, and explaining their logic behind this and would love to hear what you have to think about this. Here we go. Hey, guys, it's Jason here again, and I'm talking to you from the Granger Commons. Not Granger Community Church, not the Granger Campus. No, I'm at 630 East University Drive, but I'm speaking to you from the Granger Commons. You're going to start seeing this change on our signage. You're going to start hearing it when we talk about this place. And we wanted you to be the first to know. We wanted to explain this to you. So here goes. But first, I need to tell you real quick about a friend of mine who asked me a question one day. It looks like a mall. I was in class a couple years ago at school. I had a classmate from another country, and he asked me if he could come see this church because he'd been hearing so much about it. The problem was... It was a Tuesday afternoon. I didn't know where to take him. Because you you get this, right? This building has never been and will never be Granger Community Church. Not this building, no. However, this place has always been a resource that we use. This has been a place where Granger Community Church gathers. One of the places where we come together to worship and reach out to our friends. And it will continue to be that. You know know what's missing? You know what I don't see at Granger Commons? Across. But... As our mission has grown and our vision has sharpened, we want this resource to keep pace with that vision. We believe this change is going to help us in a few ways. First of all, it's going to help us remember that a building is never the church. When you drive by the Granger property that's called Granger Commons now and you see that on the sign, remind yourself, we're the church, that's a... Seriously, their marquee looks like, it looks like a shopping center. You know, it looks like the type, same exact kind of signage you'd see at a shopping center. ...building that we use sometimes to help us accomplish God's mission. We also think that this change is going to help the community understand that we are opening our arms and our doors to them in unprecedented ways. This isn't just semantics. This transformation is already happening here. The Early Learning Center is off and running. The e- so they have an Early Learning Center. I'm assuming this is like a preschool or something. Okay, yeah, great. Okay, so the Granger Commons now has an Early Learning Center. Eatery and reads and things are already open on a limited basis. Is soon to be open. Uh, okay, so they've got a, they've got a restaurant and a bookstore, the eatery and reads and things at Granger Commons. Yeah, open all week long. We've done things like hosting Brown Mackey College graduations and the Penn High School Winter Dance because we're activating the campus and leveraging everything we have to love our neighbor and serve the mission of Jesus. Yeah, so they're they're a community resource center now. The building is a community resource center with a early education thing and. Uh, a restaurant and uh, a reads and things and and they rent out their property to you know local you know events and stuff like that yeah so they're no longer it's no longer granger community church it's granger commons <clears throat> the um <clears throat> community resource center 
So, um, yeah, there you go. Um, and I like all of you. I didn't see a single cross on their property. Maybe that gets in the way of the mission of Jesus. I don't know, but we'd love to get your feedback. You know, so if you want to email me what you think about that, I'd, I'd love to find out what you think. All right. Moving along, I've got a Brian McLaren update. This might take a few minutes, but uh, let's introduce Brian McLaren using his song. Here we go. That's right. This is the he's singing to the unknown god of postmodernism, the majestic mystery. Um, oh, mysterious majesty. Don't know who you are or what you are, but my small hand can never grasp you. Only I can hold it open. Yeah, oh majestic. Misery. All right. Yeah. Let me just kill the music because it. it <laughs> sorry. Every time I play that, it's like. Ugh. Yeah. His God is the great majestic mystery. He knows nothing. I mean, you can't really know anything for certain about God whatsoever. Um, but. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to have to remind you of some previous history here, but let me read to you the headline from. Christianity Today. This is you can find this at blog.christianitytoday.com. The headline from yesterday reads Brian McLaren leads commitment ceremony at his son's same-sex wedding. And uh, but you know this is written by Melissa Stefan of Christianity Today. The McLaren family wedding ceremony did include Traditional Christian elements, in case you were worried that, you know, oh, no, you know, did they have a traditional wedding, you know, at the same-sex wedding? There were traditional Christian elements. Don't worry. Uh, Brian McLaren, author of A New Kind of Christianity. By the way, there's no such thing. Christianity is the faith once delivered to the saints. There's no new kind of it. You don't get to rethink it. You don't get to repurpose it. You don't get to reinvent it or anything like that. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, and Brian McLaren in this new kind of Christianity, he right out of the shoot from the time that Leadership Network and uh, the Purpose Driven Community in Willow Creek put Brian McLaren out as you know one of these great emerging church leaders, somebody who was understanding how to reach postmoderns for the gospel. Right out of the shoot, the first thing he began doing was attacking and deconstructing historic Christian orthodoxy. Um, I would point you to his book, a quote generous orthodoxy as just an example of that. Now, at the time that he published that book, I was vocally uh, uh, critiquing uh, what he was saying in that book at that time uh, as a blogger. And I took all kinds of heat, basically saying that I was being ungenerous, that I was drawing conclusions that could not be supported, and people were telling him to shut up. He really does believe Christianity. He's just reaching the postmodern crowd or whatever, okay? But this again, this past weekend, Brian McLaren led the commitment ceremony at his son's same-sex wedding. Brian McLaren, the author of a new kind of Christ, uh, a new kind of Christian and a prominent Christian speaker, he's not a Christian, led a non-traditional marriage commitment ceremony this weekend, according to the New York Times, held at the Audubon Natural Society in Chevy Chase, Maryland. This included traditional Christian elements, but no bride. 
really? Uh-huh. There were two grooms, right? And the groom, one of them, was McLaren's son, Trevor McLaren. The Times reports that Trevor McLaren wed Owen Ryan Saturday in Washington, D.C., followed by the afternoon commitment ceremony. Brian McLaren, who formerly was chair of the board for Sojourners, is among a minority of evangelical progressives. He's not an evangelical, by the way, who advocate that the church should abandon heterosexism and move towards reconciliation with homosexuals. Now, for those of you not familiar with this little story, because it actually predates fighting for the faith, um, six years ago, not five, but six years ago, Brian McLaren called for a five-year moratorium on the uh, issue of homosexuality, okay? And this itself was published on Christianity Today's website that was that is named out of Ur. It is a which was their online leadership journal. So six years ago, when the whole emergent thing was going, you can go to you know the emergent village website, and they were being prolific in their uh, blog posts and stuff like that at the time. Uh, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren were all names that were. Um, put into the spotlight and speakers who were put forward as new 21st century Christian thought leaders by, uh, well, uh, the purpose-driven community, uh, Willow Creek Association. In fact, uh, McLaren uh, spoke at a, uh, at a prominent youth conference put on by Willow Creek, okay? And yet, out of the chute, he has been nothing but an adjutant against historic orthodoxy. Let me, let me read to you from January 23rd, 2006, from Christianity Today's leadership journal called Out of Ur. You can find this at outofur.com. The headline reads, Brian McLaren on the homosexual question, finding a pastoral response. It, this, is, this is the setup here. In his prominent role as author, theologian, speaker, and leader of the emergent conversation, some forget that Brian McLaren is also a pastor. In the latest issue of Leadership Journal, which focuses on ministry in a sexually charged culture, Brian shares a story that reveals the complexity of the homosexual question, a question where theology, truth, sin, grace, culture, politics, and pastoral wisdom collide. The couple approached me immediately after the service. This is Brian McLaren writing. This was their first time visiting, and they really enjoyed the service. They said, but they had one question. Can You can guess what the question was about. Not transubstantiation, not speaking in tongues, not inerrancy or eschatology, but where our church, church stood on homosexuality. That still, small voice told me not to answer. Instead, I asked, can you tell me why that question is important to you? It's a long story, he said with a laugh. Usually when I'm asked about this subject, it's by conservative Christians wanting to be sure that we conform to what I call um, radio orthodoxy. Not biblical, but radio. I.e. the religio-political priorities mandated by the by many big-name religious broadcasters. Sometimes it's asked by ex-gays who want to be sure that they'll be supported in their ongoing reorientation process, or parents 
whose children have recently come out. But the the young woman explained, this is the first time uh, my fiancé and I have ever actually attended a Christian service since we were both raised agnostic. So I suppose they were... Were most uh, were like most unchurched young adults I meet who wouldn't want to be part of an anti-homosexual organization any more than they want to be part of a racist or terrorist organization. Nice comparison, right? Yeah, and this is Brian McLaren writing. If you know six years ago, I hesitate in answering the homosexual question not because. I'm a cowardly flip-flopper who wants to tickle ears, but because I'm a pastor. And pastors have learned from Jesus that there's more to answering a question than being right or even honest. And we must also be pastoral. That means understanding the question beneath the question and the need or fear or hope or assumption that motivates the question. We pastors want to frame our answer around that need. We want to fit in with the Holy Spirit's work in that person's life that particular moment. To put it biblically, we want to be sure our answers are seasoned with salt and appropriate to the need of the moment. McLaren then goes on to write, frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. We've heard all sides, but no position has yet won our confidence so that we can say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. That alienates us from both liberals and conservatives who seem to who know exactly what we should think. Even if we are convinced that all homosexual behavior is always sinful, we still want to treat gay and lesbian people with more dignity, gentleness, and respect than our colleagues do if we think that they may actually be, uh, be a, a legitimate context for some homosexual relationships. We know that the biblical arguments are nuanced and multi-layered, and, and the pastoral ramifications are staggeringly complex, and we aren't sure if uh, or where lines are to be drawn, nor do we know how to enforce with fairness whatever lines are drawn. So perhaps we need a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements. In the meantime, we'll practice prayerful Christian dialogue, listening respectfully, disagreeing agreeably. When decisions need to be made, they'll be admitted provisionally, and we'll keep our ears attuned to scholars in biblical studies, theology, ethics, and psychology, genetics, and sociology, and uh, and related fields. And then in five years, if we have clarity, we'll speak. If if not, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. So that was his suggestion six years ago. Um, obviously, we're past the uh, the original five-year moratorium. And, well, apparently, um, Brian McLaren believes, I think it's fair to say, that God the Holy Spirit um, wants us to affirm homosexuality. I mean, how else am I to um, uh, interpret his behavior in presiding at his son's same-sex wedding? Which kind of begs the question, um, do you think... That the fact that Brian McLaren's son is gay has any bearing whatsoever upon the things that he's written in the past regarding homosexuality? You understand what I'm saying? It's not exactly like he's unbiased in this particular regard. Now, the tragedy in all of this is this, okay, is that, yes, there are some in the name of Jesus who mistreat and abuse in the most unloving way people who are homosexuals. This absolutely does happen, all in the name of Jesus, and that's sinful, and it's wrong. But 
At the same time, it is also sinful and wrong for men like McLaren and other so-called postmodern progressives to twist God's word and comfort people who are practicing homosexuals by saying, oh, God blesses these unions. God, listen, don't listen to any of those passages in the Bible that condemn homosexuality. They they mean something else, okay? And so they, they engage in deconstruction and, wor- and you know, definitional retwisting and, and claim all kinds of weird contexts and, and subtleties and nuance that so in order that at the end of the process, when God condemns homosexuality, what he's really doing is blessing it. That's what they do. The clear passages that condemn homosexuality as sin, they they twist and go through this transmogrification so that the end of it, God doesn't mean that he's that it's sinful. He means that he loves it and he's and it's completely fine by him. That's what that that's what they end up doing. So as a result of it, here's what happens. People who are literally enslaved to sins of the flesh including homosexuality, are comforted with a false comfort, are comforted with a false gospel. And their good news is that, oh, that God doesn't care, that he blesses this, he's all for it, okay, when he's not. And as a result of it, they aren't told that Christ loved them so much that he died for those sins, and he calls them to repent and to be forgiven of those sins and to be set free from bondage to those sins. So as a result of it, they are told in the name of Jesus, God doesn't care when he does. That God blesses these these relationships when he doesn't. And they're comforted with a false comfort that on the last day will be revealed for what it is, a false gospel that doesn't save. And they will learn truly that God does care very much so, in a very negative way, so much so that he will judge people and send them to hell as a result of these sins and those who comforted him falsely with a false gospel. That's the tragedy in all this. So rather than confronting his son with his sin and calling him to repent and to be forgiven, instead, Brian McLaren, in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, in the name of the majestic mystery has told his son that God blesses this and I will be happy to preside over your commitment ceremony and same-sex wedding, giving you my blessing and claiming as part of that blessing that you have God's blessing as well when they don't. That is the tragedy of this whole thing. There's more tragedy to it. Keep in mind, it was a crime that Brian McLaren for so long was presented as a theologian, Christian leader, and all that kind of stuff by such important institutions as Willow Creek, Leadership Network, and the Purpose Driven Community, when all along he was working to undermine historic Christian orthodoxy. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. I want to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy D. Young, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, Brian McLaren's so-called generous orthodoxy and new kind of Christianity is nothing more than old-time heresy. It will send you to hell. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. This is their spirit-filled rendition of Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra, an homage to Friedrich Nietzsche. Having been set free from the pesky, limiting definitions of modernist notage, they just let the spirit guide them as they play whatever they feel like playing. And it comes out just like this. So have you ever wondered what an emergent progressive like Tony Jones or another guy by the name of the Reverend Russell, who's another uh, postmodern progressive type, what they would do with like, you know, lectionary readings, you know, through the biblical gospel? Um, Well, if you're wondering what they would do with these biblical passages, um, if you go to YouTube.com forward slash hardest question, you can find Tony Jones and the Reverend Russell discussing these particular uh, pericopes and giving you their postmodern progressive insights to help you prepare your sermons in a postmodern and progressive way um, through these biblical texts. Now, let me give you the text that uh, they're going to be responding to. It's a short little three-and-a-half-minute video, and they're talking about the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Verses 2 through 16, let me read the pericope. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house 
of the disciples in, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Seems like a pretty straightforward text, does it not? Well, in three and a half minutes, Tony Jones and his postmodern progressive compadre will be sure to blur it, obfuscate it, and basically make it meaningless. You don't believe me? Hang on to your seats. Here we go. Hey, my name's Tony Jones. And this is the Reverend Russell, and this is the Hardest Question video blog, and this is Ordinary 27. Well, we kind of got, uh, we had a little off-camera conversation. We did, with long conversation. Because there are these three verses that I really wish weren't in the Bible. Which are those? Jesus is like, let the children come to me, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Divorce. Right, like, yeah, right. Divorce, if you divorce, and, and I'm divorced. Yeah. So, like, I don't like that... Yeah, it says... Yeah. That's awkward, isn't it? I mean, here Jesus explains... In fact, let me read the text again here. Um, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Pretty straightforward. Um, There you go. And so you don't like this. Yeah, well, so what? What does whether you like that passage or not have anything to do with it? Is the reason why you don't like it is because you have been found guilty then, according to Jesus' own words, of committing adultery, Tony? It says, you know, sure, Moses lets you get divorced. That's because he just knows how bad you are. That's the only reason he wrote that law. Yeah. I say that once to become one flesh... You that's know, it. That's it. And if you do get divorced, you're an adulterer. Yet yeah, notice the mocking tone that they're taking with the words of Christ. Well, if a woman divorces, oh, she yeah. commits adultery. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a double standard. But uh, did you read the text, Tony? You're accusing Jesus of having a double standard. Yet Mark 10, verse 11, Jesus said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Doesn't seem like a double standard there. It seems like Jesus got the full loop. It was both male and female uh, committing divorce. It's not like Jesus was some kind of misogynist. But isn't it? Yeah. So why, what, why is this so... It's just out of the... You know, it, it really comes out... I mean, I guess Jesus is talking about family kind yeah. of stuff, and he's responding to a question the Pharisees ask. Yeah. Um, so can I just say this? Whoever does not leave mother or father, you know, gives up their family to follow me, is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Right. So now he's pitting Jesus's... So to make, oh, see, see, Jesus said something that's weird and hard to understand, so... He can't mean that divorce means that you're committing adultery. That's he's pitting passages that you know, you know Jesus quotes against each other in order to take away the sharp edge of what this text says. But if you get a divorce, 
That's the worst possible You're doubly thing. bad. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, you do, I mean, this is one of those issues where you can't preach about this in the abstract. Because how many people are going to be divorced there? Yeah, sitting in your congregation, yeah. sitting up there on... Uh, Jesus wasn't talking about it in the abstract. Uh, on staff with you. Yeah, up, right. Up front. Yeah, I mean, every, yeah, so many of people. Of course, yeah. of course. And we've come to terms with divorce in our culture and our society, maybe for ill. Yeah, maybe for ill. Why? Because we're at odds with Jesus. I mean, so it, it's such a tricky thing. And, and you know, here again... Those more progressive among us yeah, right. tend to do some kind of relativizing of the sure. tracks and a little tap dance off shoe yeah. kind of like, well... Yeah, kind of like what you guys have been doing, right? Yeah. Well, in Jesus' day, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But, like, at face value, and this seems like one of those kind of things that even the Jesus seminar would have dropped, you know, whatever, yeah. the green bead in. Like, right. Jesus probably really, actually said that this. this is like kind of an apocalyptic rabbi kind of thing to say. Yeah, and so you have to really be thinking about the, the people sitting in there. You can't go by this. And then it's just a killer, right? It's like, okay, you know, if you are get divorced, he's like committing adultery. Um, and then he says, let the little... No, no, it's not like committing adultery. He said, if you do that, you do. Children come to me. You're breaking the people's hearts. Like, they can't this weekend. They're with their dad. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's just this is this isn't my parenting time, right? It's just killer. So you, yeah, I think you have to deal with people who are actually divorced, reading this and what questions they're bringing to that, and they're probably bringing the question, "Am I bad?" Right. <laughs> you know. The answer is yes. That's the point. You see, because the law condemns us all. And it's Christ who died for our sins. Salvation is a free gift offered by Christ. You've got to preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And here, Jesus, what he's doing here is taking away the Pharisees' self-righteousness. Because in their self-righteousness, they were putting their wives away, writing a certificate of divorce, and sending them on their way so they can marry some other woman. And and they were thinking, oh, well, I'm perfectly fine with this because I can look to the Mosaic Law, and the Mosaic Law says da-da-da-da-da-da. And so they could do such a thing and say they can claim that they were still righteous. And Jesus pulls the rug out from under them and basically exposes the fact that they're not righteous, they're adulterers. That's the point of the text. Or is everything Jesus said not necessarily authoritative? Right. Yeah, so yeah, there we go. So what's Tony Jones' solution? Maybe everything that Jesus said isn't necessarily authoritative. Yeah, so that's that's the fork in the road, friends. Yeah, so... Uh... Let us know how you preach this. We'd yeah. really like to know. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, an attack on, flat out attack on God's word and what it says. You know, in three and a half minutes, you take a clear text and basically make it impossible to say that it means anything in particular. I mean, yeah, who knows what that means? Yeah. Yeah, um, from the uh, Huffington Post, Dr. Carl Guyberson, uh, good friends, by the way, of the emergent camp and uh, and folks like Brian McLaren, has a uh, an article entitled, If Only We Could Edit the Bible. If Only We Can Edit the Bible. Uh, Guyberson writes, I've often wondered quietly and usually to myself 
What would happen if we could edit the Bible? After all, textbooks get edited and publishers bring out new and improved versions that are more in tune with how things are instead of how things were. Wouldn't it be good if some ecumenical committee could go through the Old Testament and take out all the language about stoning people to death for breaking various rules or or maybe soften the passages where the psalmist talks about bashing the heads of babies of his enemies against the rocks? We could also fix some of those new testament misquotes of the old testament suggesting this is heretical of course but it seems to me that it would be better in some ways at least to edit the bible than to ignore it as we do when it speaks of stoning or divorce or to reinterpret it beyond all recognition when we suggest that social justice is anti-christian or to selectively lift out phrases that serve our selfish interests when we preach that god wants us all to be rich but first have to donate to a televangelist an editorial process would at least be up front about what was uh, what was going on. It, wasn't that the whole Jesus seminar, by the way? Th- this problem is especially acute for Protestants who don't have a tradition of uh, companion theological reflection, what the Roman Catholics call the magisterium, to place the Bible in a larger context that's informed by ongoing reflection and dialogue with our changing understanding of the world. In, in extreme but broadly accepted cases, we hear claims that literal statements of the Bible trump all other forms of knowledge, even in science, but these an- these ancient lights, the world is 10,000 years old and humans were contemporary with dinosaurs. The science in the Bible poses especially difficult problems that call for out for our editing, or at least supplementary reflection. You get the gist of it already, right, don't you? Yeah, Dr. Carl Guyberson. Um, um, calling for, you know, basically saying, oh, if only we can just edit the Bible. They do that functionally, by the way. Emergence, liberals, postmoderns, guys like Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, Pastor Russell, and others. Yeah, just, you know, selectively manipulate the biblical text and edit it you know, on the fly, in order to empty it of its meaning. Yeah, like I said, there's two ways to attack the Bible. One is directly the way the emergence and the postmoderns do it. And the second way, well, is the way that you're about to hear in our sermon review. Yeah, we're going to take our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Almighty, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Cornerstone Church, uh, uh, Gilbert uh, Mesa Tempe area, Arizona. Lynn Winters presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled, Untitled, Writing Your Family Story. Now keep in mind our question. What's the point of saying you believe the Bible if when you open the Bible, you don't preach what it says? Okay, that's the question. What's the point of saying you believe the Bible if you don't believe, if you don't, when you open it, you don't preach what it says? Now, I've got a question for you. Does the Bible give us instructions on how to create a family legacy or to write your family story? I mean, think about it. You know, think, okay, Genesis to maps. Anything come to mind? Well, don't worry. Lynn Winters will find a passage to twist to turn into that. Which, by the way, it's a fantastic passage, but <clears throat> I'll fix it along the way. All right. So without any further ado, here is Lynn Winters and his sermon entitled, Untitled, Writing Your Family Story. Here we go. Hey, uh, we are going to spend the next couple weeks together talking about this idea of family. And here's the interesting thing is that family is such a huge influence. It is so powerful in its effects in our lives. Short of you finding a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is probably nothing that will change you or mold you or form you like your family. 
And yet in the midst of that, often we don't, we don't even think about how we're doing family. And yet family in many ways is doing us. It is forming and making us uh, who we are. Some of us, uh, you were born in a family maybe where finances were really, really frugal. And you came away from that moment saying, look, I, I'm just not going to be that way. I'm not going to live my life in such austerity and, and my kids never having anything. And that has formed how you live and do life right now. Some of you may have come from just the opposite situation. Maybe finances were frivolous, and so the family was fraught with fear every time unexpected bills came. And you just said, look, I, I cannot do that to people I love, and, and I'm, I'm going to have some sort of reserve in my life. But you were formed by that. Some of us watched our parents go to church on Sunday and then come back on Monday and be completely different people. And we saw the hypocrisy of their life. We just said, look, I, if that's what being a Christian and following God is, then I don't want any part. Some of us spent years and years and years away from God because of what we experienced in our family. Some of us had just the opposite. Some of us uh, grew up in homes where Christ was the center. And we just said, that's, that's just how life is supposed to be. And, and my biggest challenge is to carry on that legacy uh, to my children. But at the end of the day, you and I were deeply deeply formed by our family. I, I catch myself uh, saying things, having words come out of my mouth, and they sound like my dad. Uh, okay, uh, sure. Um, your job is to preach the word. Um, what does this have to do with God's word again? I, 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 th- I know moments in relationships, and, and, and I'll be reserved, and I know that comes exactly from my mom. And if you stop for a moment and pause, you, you would come to the same, you would say, the fingerprints of my family, immediate and extended, are all over my life. And this has had an incredible influence, either to the positive or in some of our lives to the negative. But all of us have been touched by family. And here's the incredible part. Most of us don't have a family plan for our family. Uh, we may have tweaked a few things that we experienced. We may say, look, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. But for the most part, you and I are absolutely ignoring this incredibly, incredibly powerful thing uh, in our lives. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks just saying, what would it look like to create a family legacy? What would it look like to do family on purpose? That we would end up with the result we wanted to have. That, that we would influence people the way we wanted to influence. That we would leave the fingerprints on our children that we wanted to leave. Uh, the name of the uh, sermon series is Untitled. And uh, here's how we got there. Here's how we chose that. It was out of this idea that says, Every generation in your family and every generation of the Smiths has had the opportunity to write a chapter in the Smith family story. Every generation gets to write their own chapter. Boy, that, that's just a fine sentimentality, isn't it? Um, but you know, here's the deal. I don't know what happens in your family, but I can tell you this, that the stories that get told in our family about our family don't go v- back that far. Um, yeah, I can't tell you about great, 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 great grandpa, whoever, whatever, um, because you know you got your mom's side and your dad's side. I, I in fact, um, most of the family stories I hear don't go much farther back than my great grandmother, um, who, according to my family, was somewhat eccentric. 
I know you find that hard to believe, but um, so I mean, as this is just sentimental platitudes at this point. Uh, I mean, see, every one of us gets to write a chapter in our family's ongoing legacy and story, and 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 if you write a good one, maybe it'll become the title of your family's book. Um. Wow. Um. This is what's passing for biblical preaching, really. We continue. The Smith family story isn't done yet. The Edwards family story hasn't been completed. And right now, you, me, we are writing our chapter. And how cool would it be if the chapter that you and I write, the chapter of your generation, were so powerful in the Edwards family story that it became the title of the book. Oh yeah, that would be so cool, man. Um, yeah, again, these are nothing more than sentimental platitudes, really. And not only that, it's all law. Um, yeah, we we better rise above. See, we better compete so we can have our name be the title. Yeah. What if your chapter was the pivotal chapter in your family story, the chapter that marked everything else about the Edwards? The Smiths were never the same because of your family and how you live. Wouldn't that be amazing? So we called it... Un- yeah, that, that would just be... Who cares? I, amazing or not? Well, who cares? What does this have to do with God, with Christ, with sin, with Christ's death on the cross for our sins, with redemption, with repentance, with sanctification? What does this have to do with anything in the Bible? Entitled... Because you and I have the opportunity to write the title of the Edwards family. Now, I know there's some of us in the room, and you go, look, I'm, I'm an empty nester. My kids are already gone. I've already messed them up. <laughs> you're, you're a day late, a dollar short. Thanks for nothing. And here's what I'm going to say to you. Guys, don't, don't you dare, don't you, don't you dare. Do not underestimate the influence of grandparents. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, this is some deep preaching here. No Bible so far. I gotta ask the question: What's the point in saying that you believe the Bible to be inerrant, authoritative, the inspired, you know, Word of God? If when you open it or you're supposed to preach, you um, don't handle it correctly um, during preaching time, you engage in hallmark greeting card, family sentimental sentimentality and platitudes. Whatever you do, don't underestimate the influence. Of grandparents. Yeah, I don't know what this has to do with Christianity or the Bible. And I am just, I'm standing in front of you today as someone who has to say, my grandparents played huge, huge influence in my family life. And so even, even if your kids are... You're still writing your chapter. And you have the opportunity, if, if you need to, to still change the chapter. Some of you in the ring on. So it hasn't gone to the publisher yet. We can make some edits. Got it. And I, I'm single, and I'm not even thinking about this. I'm just trying to figure out who to date and careers. St- I, I, you're, you're way ahead on the deal. You're writing your chapter right now. Uh, you are making decisions right now that will become your story. <laughs> uh, you're dating people right now that you may end up married to. And if the wrong person. That, that could change 
your entire story. You're developing habits right now. So you're going, look, I'm young, I'm single, I, I can do whatever I want. But you're developing habits right now that if you're not careful, will become your story. So I'm just going to tell you, there, there's nobody in this room who's immune from this conversation. Because every one of us is part of a family. So what I want to do is just to dive in this morning, get going, uh, as we begin to talk about this idea of what does it mean to create a family legacy? What does it mean to be writing a chapter that's so powerful? Yeah, what does it mean to create a family legacy? What on earth are you talking about? How does this have anything to do with the Bible? I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. I mean, this sounds like something I can get on PBS on, you know, Saturday morning. You know, would you like to write your family legacy? Well, we can give you some tips and tricks. And in fact, we'll even throw in a free ancestral genealogy if you'd like to learn how you can better make your family legacy one that will be one for the ages. <clears throat> Just send in your three easy payments of ninety-seven forty-five to, you know, you get what I'm saying here? That it becomes the title of the book. And so if you grab your Bibles, go with me to Psalms chapter 78, because I believe we encounter someone here who says, this is how you do this. This is how you write a family story that generations behind you will tell your story. Okay, <clears throat> did you hear what he just said? Go to Psalm 78, because this tells us how to write a family story. Does, do you think that Psalm 78, that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the divine author here to write Psalm 78 as a how-to psalm so that you can learn the important steps of how to write a family story? Is that why Psalm 78 was penned? Um, <clears throat> well, let's read it. I happen to have it open here. Let me read it to you. It's long. And I'm going to read every single verse of this psalm so that you get what's going on here. This, by the way, this psalm is not about you giving you tips and tricks on how you can write a good family legacy. That's not the point of this text at all. Because remember, the scriptures are about Christ, right? <clears throat> so Psalm, uh, psalm 78, verse 1, give ear. O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. You see, verse 4 makes it clear here. This isn't about a, just any old tips and tricks on how to write a family legacy. This is designed so that fathers can tell their children of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his, God's might, and his wonders that he has done, right? Listen to this. He established a testimony in Jacob. Who would that be? God. And appointed a law in Israel, which he, God, commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope 
in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and a rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them in the sight of their fathers. He performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He, God, made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart. They, by demanding the food that they craved, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob by his anger, and his anger arose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven, Man ate of the bread, and of the angels he sent them food in abundance. He, God, caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He, God, let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, The anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God and their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths, and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes to nothing. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and the frogs which destroyed them. He gave their uh, their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and the sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and the flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger, and he did not spare them from death. 
but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. He then led them out his people like sheep and guided them into the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain, which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but burned, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, invented his wrath on his heritage, fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord woke from his woke as from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. And following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, and his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So there is Psalm 78. Does that sound like a um, psalm that is giving us how-to instructions on how to build our own family legacy? Not at all. These recount the glorious deeds of God and man's sinful, rebellious, unbelieving response. Right? Lays it all out. And then the end here where it says in verse 70, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds and from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance with upright heart. He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Right. David is the one who is the direct descendant of the Messiah. There's some messianic overtones going on here that point us to Jesus. All the mighty works that God did, how he atoned for their sins, forgave them, and yet they continued to not believe and to rebel against him. That's what Psalm 78 is about. But what you're going to hear from Lynn Winters, no joke, is apparently the opening verses give us a how-to on how to build our own family legacy. So I ask the question again before we get to Lynn Winters' complete obfuscation of this text. What's the point in saying that you believe that God's word is inerrant, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and is authoritative, if when you open the text, you don't preach what it says. It's uh, Psalms chapter 78. And again, if, if you're not familiar today how to get there, it's pretty easy. Just take your Bible, put your thumbs in the middle, open it up. Chances are uh, you're going to find uh, this book of Psalms. Uh, if you find the book of Jobs, it's not what you think. Um, 
go a little bit to the right, um, you'll find this book of Psalms. Psalms chapter uh, 78. Do me this as we're going through. Try and follow along. See if you can get a gist of uh, what he's saying here about how to write a, a family a legacy. Psalms chapter 78. We'll start in. Did you hear that? He's, this is what he's saying. Whoever wrote this psalm wrote it in order to teach you how to have a family legacy. Uh, verse 1 together. Here's what it says. All my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. And then now he begins. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation. So he goes, look, there's a family story. There's, there's something that's gone on before we ever got here. And that family story is part of us. And we will not fail to tell the past family story. He then goes on. Back to verse 3. What we so apparently um, we're supposed to... No kidding. We're supposed to make sure we tell the uh, younger generation what the previous generation... That's apparently what the whole point of this. The whole point is to tell them about the wonders of God. Heard and known and what our fathers have told us, verse 4, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and he established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers, ready, to teach their children. So he says, look, there were generations who went before us. That's a story. That's a, but now it's our time. And our time right now is to leverage the story of the past into the present as we teach our children. To take what has happened to make it bear on what is going to happen in our family, in the present. Verse 6. So the next generation would know them, the stories, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children... And he said, look, the most powerful thing that we do is, is instill in the lives of our children this idea that says, and you get to write the next chapter of the Edwards story. It, it doesn't stop here. It goes on with you. I, I mean, it's as if he's completely clueless that this passage is about teaching the wonders of what God has done. He sees in this passage a how-to on how to write a family legacy regarding your particular family. Talk about missing the entire point. My question again, what's the point in saying you believe that the Bible's authoritative if when you open it, you don't preach what it says? And to leverage the Edward story into future generations. Then they would, read verse 7, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. Okay, so three phases, three steps in this idea of creating a family legacy. So, John so apparently Psalm 78 has a three-step process you've got to follow in order to create a family legacy. Jump with me back to step number one, verse three. Here we go. Here's what it says. What we have heard... And known what our fathers told us about our relatives, about our family history, about how we got to today. Verse 4. We will not, you ready? Hide them from our children. 
Here's what you need to know. Generations before you wrote the story. That the generations that preceded you were writing the Edwards, the Smiths, the Johnsons family story. But you and I have to decide as we caretake that story what we're going to do. And here's the interesting thing. You and I, I think, are often tempted to whitewash the past. To, to somehow take the less desirable moments of our family history and kind of sweep them under the rug. And yet here, uh, the psalmist says, we will not hide them. You know, it, it, it's Uncle Ted. And everybody knows, <laughs> Uncle Ted stole horses for a living. That's what he did. I mean, one, one would have been a mistake, but by the time he got to 14, he was a horse thief. And let's just, let's just say out loud what Uncle Ted was and what Uncle Ted did. Because the power of the story is not that you rewrite your family history so that your kids feel good about Uncle Ted. The power of the story is that they see the mistakes of Uncle Ted, understand where he went, that they would never go. It's Aunt Alice. And guys, you've been at funerals. You know this. Aunt Alice is mean as a cob. I mean, man, you walk in. Does this psalm mention Uncle Ted, the horse thief, or Aunt Alice, the meanie? Um, Are they ever mentioned in this psalm? Like, not at all. So, step one to writing your family legacy, according to Psalm 78, the hidden how-to psalm on how to write a family legacy. Make sure you don't hide the gory details of, of your family's story. Make sure you tell them to everybody and don't whitewash, you know, you know, Uncle Ted's history or Aunt Alice or, you know, Flo or whoever. You know, make sure you tell the whole thing. She cannot, she says stuff out of her mouth that is so harmful, so hurtful. I mean, you go in the room and it's just, it is just so unbelievably incorrect what she says. And people walk out of the room wounded. And then Aunt Alice dies. And we go to her funeral, and here's what we say. Boy, good old Aunt Alice. <laughs> Always spoke her mind. No, she didn't. She harmed and hurt and wounded everybody she came in contact with. And guys, I'm just, I'm just telling you, you and I do our family no favors. Because here, here's the thing you need to get. Here's, here's the moment. You ready? If you and I never talk about, if you and I never declare out loud the mistakes of the past... They cannot become the lessons of the future. That's not what the psalm is saying. Good night. You got to say out loud the mistakes of the past so they become the lessons of the future. Did you find that on a fortune cookie? Seriously. Let me say that again because it's huge. If you and I don't speak with honesty about our family and about the mistakes of the past, they cannot become the lessons of the future. And our children and our children's children become doomed to repeat the failures. And instead, when you and I are transparent, when you ask, oh, look, this is just how it was, and this is what it was, and, and where Aunt Alice went, you don't want to go, and what Uncle Ted did, you don't want to do, then suddenly our children get to stand on the shoulders of their ancestors and say, look, I don't, I don't have to do that. I don't have to go where they went. I've got a relative who already showed me what that path, and I, no thanks. <laughs> No thanks. Okay. So here's what he did. I broke, I broke out the family uh, portraits for you today. So, uh, okay. Your family's not in Psalm 78. 
That's not the point. Okay, it'll be short, I promise. Okay, so starting with Grandma uh, McCready. Grandma McCready is actually uh, my great-grandmother. Uh, she was a young lady in the 1900s. Uh, Grandma McCready had uh, three husbands. Now, guys, think about that for a moment in the context of the 1900s. Uh, what, what type of a gal you were, if, if, I mean, three husbands. And, and the truth is, guys, about Grandma McCready is uh, she was a hard-drinking, chain-smoking, cussing-card-playing, ornery woman who ran off the first two husbands. Grandma McCready's, great-grandma McCready's daughter, uh, my great-aunt Helen. Uh, here is uh, my great-aunt Helen. Uh, Thirteen husbands. Uh, this is uh, Uncle Hank. He's the last man standing. Uh, I don't know if Aunt Helen got tired. I don't, you know, I don't know what that was. Uh, last man standing. Uh, Thirteen husbands. There's two other men in the mix. We just haven't found documentation. My great-aunt Helen's sister, my grandmother, Grandma uh, Thelma, um, her first husband died, uh, but then she had uh, two more uh, husbands after that. And I'm just going to tell you that as you go down my family uh, history, uh, there's a story there, and it's, it's not necessarily a great uh, story. Uh, here's the interesting thing, though, with Grandma Thelma, uh, the story begins to change. Uh, the story of the Winters family begins to turn. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, Grandpa Mike Winters, who I am the namesake of, is not even my blood relative. My blood relative is Grandma Thelma's first husband. Grandpa Mike comes later in life and adopts my father, and thus I get the family name of a man who never had his own children. But the cool part about my grandmother Thelma's story... So rather than preaching Christ, rather than teaching the text, which tell, takes us through the history of Israel and declares the wonders and the mercy and the power and deeds of God, right? Um, rather than doing that, he, we're now getting a family history lesson about Lynn Winters and his relations, Again, I just ask a question. What's the point of saying you believe the Bible to be the inerrant, inspired word of God? And that, you know, it's authoritative if when you open the biblical text, you don't teach what it says and the point that the Holy Spirit inspired that text to be written for. Hmm? Is, is that later in life, a neighbor boy came to her house... Uh, and offered to wash her dishes. My grandma was sick and needed some help, and the neighbor boy offered to wash dishes. And over dishes, a neighbor boy invited Grandma Thelma to church. And you realize my entire family story changes because a neighbor boy showed an act of kindness and invited my grandmother to church, which, guys, which is why what you did last Sunday is such a big deal as you invited friends and co-workers to come in this room and experience God. I, I, wonder, I wonder if we changed any family stories together last Sunday. Because I have, I've often wondered in my life, what happens in my family story without a neighbor boy who washes dishes and invites my grandma to church? Matter of fact, as I grew up as a young man, 
All I know of Grandpa Mike and Grandma Thelma is God-fearers. They, they already are living for Jesus. By the time I come along, I hear the story later uh, in my life. My parents uh, ended up divorced. I will tell you that because of my family story, I put a stake in the ground. I just said, look, I get it. I get it. I come from this heritage. I come from this line. And it's going to stop here. This will be the last generation in the Winters family to experience divorce. We're done. I am going to be faithful to my wife. I am going to give my entire heart to my wife. I'm going to show my children. Yeah, that's great, and uh, that's a nice platitude. Um, yeah, just because you are faithful to your wife doesn't mean the next generations will be. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. What it means to grow up in a Christian home from the day they're born till the day they die, we're rewriting the Winters family story because this is my chapter to write. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't feel as convicted or deeply settled on that if I did not know my past. And I'm just going to encourage you that you leverage your family story into the lives of your children. That you simply say, look, the the Edwards that came before you, the Johnsons that came before you, here's their story. This This is what it's been like up until this generation. And you and I right now are going to do one of two things. Either you and I are going to look and we're going to say, look, I don't know that I like the Edwards family story up until now. So this is the generation that's going to write a new chapter. We're going to change the story. Or it may be just the opposite. You may come from a line of people who were God-seekers and God-followers and lived amazing. And your family story is, hey, look, you and I are now going to carry on. I mean, we've got such a legacy of people following God in our past. How could we do any less? And so we're going to take up where our ancestors left and we're going to carry this on. Because the Edwards family story is a story of following God. But guys, the psalmist starts by saying, do not hide the stories of the past. Let the past be the shoulders that you and I stand on as we tell our family story. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. He goes on. Back to verse 4. We will not hide from them their hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and the wonders he has done. He decrees statutes for Jacob and established the law for Israel, which he commanded our forefathers, ready, to teach their children. So here's what he says, look. There has to be a sense in your life that right now you are writing the chapter. This Really, so that's what that verse is saying. Now you have to have a sense in your life that you're writing the next chapter. Good grief. It's as if a veil is over his eyes so he cannot see that this passage isn't about him or his family your chapter to write and it is your and my job to teach and to instill and tell this family story and leverage it as far as we possibly can because here's the deal guys you and I only get to write one chapter 
And the psalmist, oh, no, he only gets to write one chapter. But I like writing. Maybe I should, can I, can I write two, please? To say, look, write it well. Write the best chapter you can possibly write. Which, guys, here's, here's if, if nothing else sinks in today, what you are doing right now, what you are doing right now will be your chapter. It's- Good night. Where's the gospel here? Because here's the deal. If, if we're all writing a chapter right now um, and we have to tell the, all the bloody details, then our chapters are going to be chock full of sin because daily you and I sin much against God in thought, in word, and indeed by the things we do and by the things we don't do. So it's going to be a really convoluted, messy, and gory detailed chapter. But see, the good news of the gospel is not that, uh, you know, we got, we got to write the next chapter, so make it a good one. The good news is that Christ died for our sins. So all that stuff that's in our chapter is forgiven. That's the good news. It will be the story. Ready for this? It will be the story that your children tell their children. What you are doing right now will be the story. Which means, think about this. When when you got laid off from your job, how did you react? Did did you react like like God had lost control and, and the world was coming apart? Did you run around in panic? Or in that moment, did you go, hey, I don't know. I don't I don't understand it. I just know my God is faithful and there's no reason for the Edwards to panic. Because you realize in that moment you wrote your family story. When the pressure gets on and when things are not going right, are you cutting corners? Are you sticking your own hands in to kind of fix whatever looks like God's problems? Are, 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 uh, do you lie to get out of trouble? Because whatever you're doing right now is the story your children will tell their children. You are writing your chapter. And what you do right now will be the story that's told. We had a we had a gentleman on staff several years back and I love this moment in his life. Uh, he, he had come to work here at the church, and he hadn't uh, been here real long. But in the process of moving and coming and being part of our staff and didn't do so well selling his house back home, he got here and he had a pretty good uh, chunk of debt, about $8,000 worth of debt. And he had made a decision in his life, he and his wife, that said, look, we don't want her to work. We want her to be able to be home with the kids. So the bulk of that uh, basically fell on him. And as he was working here... Uh, he found himself in a place where he's going, look, I'm, we're not getting this debt taken care of uh, fast enough. And so his decision was to take a second job. So he was working and, you need, I mean, he was being faithful here. He was doing everything he's supposed to do here. And when his week was done here, he was going out and working two more days a week uh, to try to pay down uh, his family debt. It came to tax time. And as they got to taxes... Um, he sent his taxes back to the guy who'd always prepared his taxes in the past. He got it back, and there was something in his heart that just said, something doesn't feel right about my taxes. 
and he'd heard some of the other guys on staff talking about another person who had prepared their taxes. And he says, you know what, I mean? I'm just going to call up that guy on the phone and see if he would even just take a quick look at my taxes and, you know, tell me if, if he thinks, it, you know, just on a quick look, if it looks right. And so he sent his taxes away to this other gentleman and gets a phone call a couple days later and says, look, I haven't done your taxes. I, did, I just did a quick look on your taxes. But I, I think I see a pretty big mistake here. And, and if I'm right, uh, you're not only not getting anything back this year, I, I think you're going to owe about 1500 bucks. That's just my first pass, but I, again, I haven't done the taxes. What, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do your taxes? And my friend Jeff uh, paused for a moment on the phone, and, and then the tax preparer there said, I said, look, here's the deal. Uh, you can submit the taxes the other guy did. Uh, you can do that. I mean, in, in many ways, a lot of the Otis, a lot of the responsibility would be on him for having misprepared your taxes. And then if you did that, you'd actually be getting a little bit of money back. You wouldn't have the $1,500 debt if, if you want to do that. And I love this moment because Jeff knew that wouldn't be right. See, Jeff had two little boys, and he knew he was writing his family story. And so here's what he said to the tax preparer. No, you go ahead and finish and prepare my taxes. Fully knowing that he was probably going to now have to take other shifts, work even more to pay his debt. You want to hear the cool part of the story? Uh, the tax man calls him back a few days later and says, Hey, dude, it really was. That mistake was there. But here's the deal. I found so many other mistakes that work to your favor in the taxes. You're getting a significant refund, and a matter of fact, my guess is those mistakes were made in your past year's file. We can go back three years, refile, and get the money you did not get back from your taxes in the past. And when it was all said and done, every bit of his debt was wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's just a nice story about somebody with some good character. Um, what does this have to do with what the Bible teaches? This isn't, and you're not even teaching Psalm 78 even remotely close to what it says. I mean, this, I'm very glad that somebody was honest with their taxes. Huzzah. Um, but what does that have to do with a crucified and risen Savior? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You know, things like that. But guys, that's not the cool part of the story. <laughs> you know what the cool part of the story is? Two boys who watched their daddy. See, there was a moment there where Jeff had to say, okay, so who is our family going to be? Who, who, who are the Gokies? Jeff, Go who, who are the Gokies going to be known for? And he had two little boys watching. And, and I just wonder, I wonder in that moment if he had turned and said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the easy thing out, and we're, you know, I mean, we're going to let, you know, hand in the old tax form. You know what he would have said to his sons? Hey, the Gokis are a family uh, that when it gets tough, and, and, and maybe when it feels like God's not being fair, and, and uh, here's, here's what we do, we take the easy way out. That's, what, that's, that's the Gokis. And instead... Instead, he clearly established for his family, no, 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 no. The Gokis are a family that, 
You know what the funny thing is about this? I mean, seriously, all of us live in families or have grown up in families, unless you've been you know, an orphan. But um, in in a situation like that, trust me when I tell you, um, when you're around your family, you let your hair down. Okay. Um, do you think that just because this story of this guy who had enough character to, you know, to do the right thing regarding a tax error? Un, would would mean that the rest of the time, all of his the, the only thing is his children would see was all of his saintliness, and they wouldn't see his sin. You think he never was angry or harsh with them? Never had a time when he was being adult or you, you understand what I'm saying? It's just ridiculous. Uh, this I mean, here people are clapping at this one phase of the of you know the story. But if we were to go in and just set up, you know, one of those reality TV show type camera dealies around their house, we'd see this guy is just as much a sinner as any of the rest of us. Uh, and yet he's the hero of the story here, not Christ. Weird. Just weird. No matter how bad the chips get, no matter even if I live a moment where it feels like God maybe has let me down and hasn't been faithful and I've done everything I should and it's still not. The Gokies do what's right. That's who we are. Whether, you ready? Whether it turns out the way we want it to or not. So here's, you are writing right now. However you're living, whatever you're doing, however you're behaving, whatever habits your kids are seeing, whatever way you treat your wife, however you talk back to your husband, what you do when you do business, how you handle your finances, what words come out of you guys. You're writing the story of your family. The story your children will tell their children. Let me ask you a question. Are you writing the story you want to write? If we just call it done right now, chapter ended, move on to the next chapter. Are you writing the chapter you want to write? When some No, that's why I need the cross. Hey, when your family stands at your grave and we, we go back and we tell your chapter in the story. Are you writing the story, the chapter, that you want to write? And if not, it's not too late. There's still time. The chapter may be, here's how we started, but here's how we ended. Are you writing the chapter you want to write? And then lastly, the psalmist comes back. It's verse 6. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. And you get what he's saying? saying, look, here's the deal. We're not living just in the moment, just in now. We're writing the story that we want our children's children to tell about us. It's me going back and talking about Grandma Thelma. It's me going, we're writing right now and we're leveraging this moment that this story and how we've lived and, and who we've established, that this will go on for generations beyond us because our children will be telling their children about us. This has future effect. This could, this could change the entire direction of our family. It could rewrite the Edwards family story. And guys, here's the deal. Could I just challenge you to live this chapter so well, so well. 
law, 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 all law, condemning law, 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 no gospel. That you create a wake in your path. That your own children watching you live this chapter of family would say, I, I just thought the Edwards were always God-fearing. I mean, I, wow, if, if that's how mom and dad lived and that's the depth of their integrity and that was the, that was the, the measure of their faith. And I mean, if they, if they were so consistent and so faithful with God and if they were willing to sacrifice to do that in the name of Jesus, I mean, if that's what it is, then, then how could I do any less? Live so well that your kids are literally sucked up in the wake of your story. No, I want my kids to be sucked up in the wake of the story of Jesus, the one who lived the law perfectly, the one on whom my sin and their sin was placed when he was on the cross, the one who clothes us in his righteousness by faith. Years ago, I was youth pastoring, you guys know this, I had a freshman class that came through that changed everything in our youth ministry. From the day that freshman class walked in, there was a heart for God. There was a passion for Jesus Christ. That, you ready for this? That from the time they were freshmen began to influence the seniors in our youth group. By the time they were sophomores... They had literally taken charge of the entire youth group. Their influence was so powerful, so deep, that our juniors and seniors were looking to the sophomore class for direction and for leadership. So great was their wake that the entire group followed them. And during that period of time, we literally captured, we were in a smaller town, there was only one high school. The high school would call us up. Because so many of the kids in the youth group were either the president of student body council, the members of the football team, or the church. The school would call us up and say, would you give us the church calendar? Because we're not going to plan anything when you're doing an event because you'll win. We literally, we literally had a point where uh, one out of every nine kids on the high school campus was coming to our youth group on Sundays. Not because of me. Because of them. And their influence. Live a life so powerfully that your kids can't help but follow. That's what Jesus did. In your footsteps. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. Not me, not you, him. We're supposed to be telling Jesus' story. His is the great story that's to be told. He is the one they are to follow and believe and trust in. Why are you not preaching that? I did a funeral a few years back. Unbelievably godly woman. She had lived so well for Jesus Christ and died too early. Her kids were all struggling. Every one of her kids was struggling to figure out who God was in their lives. And yet I will tell you, it was probably the easiest funeral I ever preached. Because here's what I got to and was able to say. Your mom already blazed the trail. See, your, your family heritage and history is already set. And it's good. And the only question in the room today is will you take the baton? Because she ran well. And today at her funeral, she's handing off to you 
And will you live in the honor and the heritage of your mother? Live your life so well that future generations are caught in the wake of your chapter. That your chapter becomes the title of the Edwards family book. So, well, then, how do you begin that? I mean, what do you, you know, what do you, what do, you do? And I, you know what? I think, I think it's as easy, guys, as telling the story. And so here's my question. Would your kids know the story? Could your kids tell me your family story? My, sto- my family story cannot save my kids. Only the story of Jesus can save my kids and my grandkids. And then in the process of telling me the story, would they be able to do this? Would they be able to say, look, this is, this is who we have been in the past, either good or bad or whatever that is. This is who we've been in the past. But here's who we are now. This is who we have chosen to be, following God and sold out. To- You're still sinners in need of a Savior. Why don't you preach Him? The apostles didn't preach their family legacy. They preached the family legacy of Jesus. Look at the opening chapter of Matthew, right? They preached all of Jesus' story. I mean, they barely make cameo appearances. That's how little they appear even in the stories they write about Jesus. It's all about him. Tell of his wondrous works. To Jesus Christ, the past may not be great, but the present is glowing. This is who we are from this day forward. Could your kids tell me the story? And, and I just want to give you a, a, a way to go and say, but I'm not sure. And do this. Do, do what I did earlier. Break out the family pictures. Just have a family night and sit down and say, look, you know, here's Aunt Alice. And yes, she did. She, you know, bootlegged. You know, it's okay. Let me, you know, go through the story. And bring, bring it and go, look, you know, here's what we learned from Aunt Alice. And here, here's your Uncle Ted, the horse thief. And here it is. And, but let me tell you where the tide turned. And let me tell you who we are today. And then you guys ready? And I think one of the most powerful things you can do in the life of your children is turn to them and say, and here's who I hope you'll be. Because of the sacrifices your mom and me, your father and me have made to rewrite the family story. And our hope is that you'll carry it on from here. Let's bow our heads. Done. Absolutely done. How utterly tragic. What is the point in saying you believe the Bible to be the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God when you open it and you don't preach what it says? The story that needs to be told to Christians is the story of Jesus. We're grafted into his story. Through his blood, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. That's whose chapter we're written into, whose book we're written into. Remember, on the last day, the books are going to be opened. Is your book, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because you have been adopted into the family of God, the only family whose story is capable of saving you? Or will it be written in the other book? That's the question that needs to be asked. And how sad that Lynn Winters is completely oblivious to this fact. And yet he's 
the pastor of a so-called Christian church. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.